Well, guys, can I just say you're a, a seriously hardcore bunch of people. I mean, being asked to do um, big talk first thing you get here on a, on a Friday evening after a busy week. Well, it's well, well done for coming, and it's good, good on you. Uh, let me say you'll need the notes. Um, uh, the notes are there for at least two reasons. Uh, one is to give you something to write on. Uh, two is to encourage you that the end is in sight and progress is being made and you can count off the headings as we get there. Now, uh, let me start off with an end of working week question. How's life going for you at the moment? I wonder what you think of your life this evening at the end of a busy week, whether you're uh, university, home, work. How's it going for you? Are you making a success of it? Are you jumping the hurdles, ticking the boxes, getting the grades, reaching the goals, balancing the work in life, or is it unbalanced? How's it going for you now at the moment? There's no doubt about it, I think the successful life in our culture involves a terrific amount of jumping and ticking and getting and reaching and balancing. How's it going for you? I wonder if you're feeling good and glad you've come, or maybe that's the kind of question you came here to escape uh, this weekend. How would you measure the success or otherwise of your own life today? What would it look like, the successful life? Well, this weekend, as uh, we've already said, we're in 1 Corinthians, and I'm not sure what your experience of 1 Corinthians has been as a letter. It is not the easiest of New Testament letters, and I thought I'd start off by getting a feel for what your exposure to it has been. So I'm going to give you a minute, uh, plus or minus five seconds, to talk to your neighbour, and I want you to see if you can remember the last time you were taught something from 1 Corinthians. What bit were you taught from, and what were you taught? See if you can remember anything about it. You don't have to do the whole sermon, you know. Just see if you can remember something. What bit were you taught from, and what were you taught? Can you remember? Talk to your neighbour now. Talk. Okay, guys, that'll do. That's, uh, that's enough talking. Now, um, I hope you enjoyed saying hello to your next-door neighbour. Uh, I don't know what your experience of 1 Corinthians has been, but here's an observation, uh, and then a guess from me. The observation is that at first sight, uh, 1 Corinthians uh, would seem a great hunting ground for a tabloid journalist. Don't you think the, the Corinthian church is a bit like that? You can imagine the headlines from the different parts of the book. Chapter 5, Scandal, Man Sleeps with Stepmother. Chapter 6, Prominent Christian Sues Church Member, Scandal. Chapter 15, Bishop de- Denies Resurrection, brackets again, close brackets. Chapter 11, Christian Cult Mixed with, Linked with Mysterious Deaths. Chapter 14, 14 Corinthian Blessing. Christians mad, says our religious affairs correspondent. Chapter 15, baptism for the dead. Christians mad, says our religious affairs correspondent. And it goes on. If, you, if you're looking for dysfunction with a slightly tabloid press kind of edge to it, 1 Corinthians is a great place to look. It looks like a collection of rather seedy tabloid newspaper articles. And here's my guess. Uh, My guess is that when you've heard it taught, you've most usually heard it taught in a bitty sort of way. Let me illustrate. You'll probably have heard more one-off sermons on 1 Corinthians than is normal for a New Testament book. 
or <clears throat> you'll have heard a little series on a block of it. So you'll have had a little sermon series on chapter 6 and 7 on marriage and sex and all that kind of stuff. And you'll have had um, an Easter sermon or two on chapter 15 about the resurrection. And you'll have bits from chapter 11 quoted at communion services. And you'll have heard people arguing about 1 Corinthians, chapter 14, gifts, chapters 11 and 14, women in ministry. Chapter 13, you'll have at weddings and Valentine's Day evangelistic events. That's the sort of way we deal with 1 Corinthians, isn't it? A bit here, a bit there, a topic here, a topic there. And it's easy to understand why that is, isn't it? Is that, was that your experience talking around the room? It is kind of like that, isn't it? It's easy to understand why that is, because you do have a bit of bad behavior there, and another bit over there, and another one over in the corner over there. And that combination, the slightly larger-than-life, tabloidy sort of feel, and the apparent just one thing and another thing and another thing makes it very difficult. If it weren't in the Bible, you might be prefacing it with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, because it just seems like a slightly different world. Now, my experience for looking at this letter over the last few years is that it's utterly contemporary in ways that I never expected it to be. And that far from being the product of a kind of tabloid approach to Bible writing, it is the most carefully constructed and costly piece of personal persuasion. And that actually it's not bitty at all. Let me illustrate. I have two sorts of uh, yummy confectionery here. Both are superficially the same. They're both good for a sugar rush at this time of day. One is a stick of rock. It's got nice uh, stripes on the outside. One is a tube full of Skittles. Uh, there's a similarity between those, isn't there? They're kind of colorful and slightly um, E-number looking-ish, aren't they? Uh, and, uh, and stripey. And, and the similarities of the, uh, the, between these are very straightforward. But let me urge you to believe that one of these pieces of confectionery has an internal unity that the other one simply lacks. For if you take the tube off, the Skittles, they'll just fall all over the floor in a random pattern of, uh, a random association of colors. Whereas if you take the plastic wrapper off the rock, it remains a stick of rock. Stripey looking on the outside, but as we all know about sticks of holiday rock, this one came from um, Hastings rather than Port Rush, which would have been more appropriate, but never mind. Um, it says the same thing all the way through, does it not? They always say the same thing. It says Hastings on it, all the way through. No matter where you slice it, no matter what the color is on the outside, every point you cut this piece of rock says the same thing all the way through. Uh, I hope by the end of the weekend you'll see that the Corinthian letter says the same thing all the way through and is really dealing with the same issue all the way through. Now, uh, let me introduce you to the, uh, the colourful stripes <laughs> before we look at the thing that runs all the way through. Um, what's in 1 Corinthians? Well, there are a number of uh, fairly discrete sections. I've, uh, I've just uh, um, outlined those to you on the sheet. Uh, we start with a greeting in thanksgiving at the beginning of chapter 1, which, as is normal in Paul's letters, is much more significant than one might assume because the big ideas are always right there at the beginning of Paul's letters, and we'll see one a little later on. 
Then we get a section from uh, one ten through to the end of chapter 4, which is based on a report that Paul has heard from Chloe's people. I take it that means uh, members, of the people, members of the house church that meets in Chloe's house, some of whom have visited him. Parts of this letter are written in response to things that Paul has heard from various members of the Corinthian church. Now, this section, uh, 1 to 4, covers quite a lot of ground, but there isn't really a break in the argument. It's all one piece, chapter 1 to 4. So it helps, I think, to, make, uh, to treat it as a whole. And then there's a new section starting in chapter 5. It's actually reported that here's a specific issue that he's heard about. There's a change in pace at the end of chapter 4. And that section, chapter 5 through chapter 6, deals with two issues to do with public scandal. On the one hand, uh, a gross example of sexual immorality, and on the other, um, uh, Christians taking one another to court. And that dominates that bit of the letter. And then there's another section which starts 7-1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. They've written to him. And they've written to him about certain matters. And he begins this section by responding to them. Uh, Chapter 7, now about. And chapter 7, as we know, is all about marriage and sex and that kind of stuff. Chapter 8, which we'll look at tomorrow uh, morning now, about food offered to idols. Uh, Chapter 12, which we'll look at tomorrow evening, now about... The spiritual things, literally. Um, Chapter 16, now about the collection. Each new item is introduced with that phrase. Now about this, now about that. The things that you wrote to me about. And then there's concluding stuff, which is usually, uh, usually by the time you get to the end of uh, one of Paul's letters, uh, everybody's growing a little bit tired of the sermon series and the last sermon is kind of concluding stuff but as with all of Paul's letters the little ran- apparently random looking bits at the end are much more important than they look uh, we'll just touch on that this weekend but only just now those are the stripes if you like in the Corinthian letters one thing and another thing and another thing information from different sources he's putting responses together What is it that holds this letter together? What is the writing that runs all the way through the middle of the Corinthian stick of rock? Well, I think it's this. The Corinthians want the benefits of the cross without the cross-shaped life that goes with it. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because put like that, it seems too stupid for words. How could any Christian think that you could be a Christian and not have the cross-shaped life. Doesn't every Christian know the words of the Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 8? Join in when you recognize them. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. It's, it's kind of cross-shaped, that, isn't it? It's, it's got a uh, we're-on-the-road-to-crucifixion pattern to it, hasn't it? Now, every Christian knows that. But let me say, it's very easy for that idea, taking up your cross, to be somewhat abstract. Following the Lord. It sometimes remains a kind of abstract concept, that. 
It's easy to use those words of Jesus, even embrace the idea for ourselves. There were very few who would call themselves Christians who wouldn't admit that a degree of hardship is involved in being a Christian. Yes? But what does it actually look like, the cross-shaped life? Now, here's the big point of the evening. So if your neighbor is falling asleep, give them a big prod right now. This is the big point, and the big point of the weekend, really. Let me put the words of Mark chapter 8 in the language and terms of 1 Corinthians. If anyone would come after me, he must imitate the life of my servant Paul. I wonder how that grabs you, that idea. Let me say it again. If anyone would come after me, he must imitate the life of my servant Paul. That is the issue at the heart of this letter. How does that grab you as a kind of job description of the Christian life? Paul, itinerant missionary, persecuted, shipwrecked, imprisoned, executed in the end. I wouldn't be at all surprised if the idea of imitating Paul filled you with a good deal (coughs) less enthusiasm than the idea of imitating Jesus. There's a dignity about the Lord Jesus, is there not? He's a great name, if nothing else. He's impressive, even if you don't agree with him all the time. His impact on history is undeniable. People the world over, even if they don't agree with him, recognize him to be a great figure. But Paul, not quite so easy to embrace him with open arms. Paul, who is variously regarded in our own age as the one who has tampered with the message of Jesus, the one who hates women, the one who hates Jews, the champion of an inhumanly narrow sexual morality, the friend of fundamentalists, and I could go on at length. There are so many things in our culture that people really hate about the Apostle Paul. And the same was true in Corinth. And it's the big issue in this letter. Every part of this letter orbits round that central sun, the Corinthian distaste for the Apostle's way of life. They just didn't like the way he did things. Let me introduce you briefly for the rest of our time to the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians, for that is at the heart of this letter. Um, We'll look at this in a great deal uh, more detail as the weekend unfolds. This is just a skim, so let me give you a flavor of the issues here. Paul brought the gospel to Corinth. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. He spent at least a year and a half there. It was a significant ministry. A church was started. It was difficult work. There was plenty of opposition. Read Acts chapter 18 for bedtime reading. Let me dip into the letter because right from the start of this letter, Paul reminds them again and again and again and again of his first visit to them. His first visit to them is a big issue in this letter. Now let me introduce you to that in chapter 1 verse 5. 
Uh, now, just for, for help's sake, uh, hands up if you're doing NIV here this weekend. Who's an NIV person? Okay, hands up the ESVers. Okay, we're about even. Well, I'm working from the ESV, not just because that's what we happen to use back home. So I'm sorry about that if you're an NIV. But the NIV translation of this is probably a little bit more helpful. Let me read verses 4 to 7. Here's the starting point. Often in Paul's thanksgiving, at the beginning of his letters, the big issues of the letter are raised. Just in embryo, and then he grows them during the rest of the letter. I give thanks to my God always for you. Because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed in you, so that you're not lacking any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to stop there. Verse 4. God has enriched you, sorry, verse 5, God has enriched you Corinthians in every way, very much indeed. And he mentions two particular areas of enrichment in all speech and all knowledge. Now, speech and knowledge are big words in this letter and we'll meet them again tomorrow, big time. But just hold those key words for a moment. How were they enriched in speech and knowledge? Answer, verse 6, through Paul's message. That's how they got the riches they've got, he says. You were enriched through the testimony, NIV, that I brought to you, the gospel. The message I brought to you has made you rich in speech and knowledge. Now, he goes on to talk about that first visit in more detail later in chapter 1 and into chapter 2. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. I, when I came to you, brothers, that first time I visited, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Corinthian culture liked impressive speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. What he's saying here is, when I visited you the first time, I behaved in a certain way. I didn't try to impress you with the kind of speech that I knew would have wowed you and pressed all your buttons. I was quite different from that. And the reason I did it that way, verse 5, was so that you'd trust God and not me. I take it that it's possible, just as an aside, I take it that it's possible to speak the gospel to, to somebody in such a way that though the words are true, you make them trust you, the messenger, rather than God, who's the origin of the message. That's what Paul's getting at here. I didn't want them to trust me. I, wanted, I didn't want you to trust me. I wanted you to trust God. And that's why I spoke in the way that I spoke when I came. And verse 4, the fact that you believed my message when I came was not because I pushed all your buttons and rang all your bells. It was because the Spirit of God was at work through that message. That's why you believed it. 
That's what happened back then, says Paul. I was deliberately unimpressive in certain ways. But you believed my message and you were thoroughly enriched by my message. Now, turn on to chapter 4. What about now? How do the Corinthians see themselves now, a little while later, in their relation to Paul? Now, if you want some verses to learn from 1 Corinthians uh, this weekend, you could do a lot worse than learn 4, 7, and 8. Because in many ways, the key issues of the Corinthian attitude to Paul are there in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. I'm just going to break in right in the middle of an argument here without much explanation. Who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you, he says. What are the important words in verse 8? Let me just read verse 8 again. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. Without us you've become kings. Would that that was true. What are the key words do you think in that, in, in that statement? Anyone? Already is an important word. Certainly is. There's another important phrase. Without us. Absolutely. Now, do you remember chapter 1? Chapter 1. How were they enriched? How were they enriched? How? Through Paul's message. What do they think now about the riches that they've got? They've got it without him. Do you see that? Without us you've become rich. Do you see the shift? Chapter 1 verse 5. You were enriched through our testimony. Chapter 4, verse 8, you're rich without us, you think, he says. Do you see, they've distanced themselves from him. They see themselves, as you read this letter, as having moved on from the one who brought the message to them. There were things about the way he did things when he came that didn't press their buttons and ring their bells. Yes, they took his message on board, but his way of doing things was always difficult for them back at the beginning. And now that he's no longer there, the Corinthians see themselves as having outgrown him, passed him on the motorway, moved on. And they look down on him and they think they're more spiritual than he is. Now let me say that in many ways this pair of verses, verse 7 and 8, gets right to the heart of the Corinthian mindset. What's different about you, verse 7? Well, the Corinthians think that they are different. We'll meet that one tomorrow. What did you have that you, don't, that you didn't receive? They find it very hard to swallow the idea that all the spiritual riches they've got came through Paul's message. They're tremendously focused on their own activity and their own specialness and differentness. Why do you boast then, says Paul? They're basically full of themselves and their abilities and how splendid they are and how spiritual they are, another key word in this letter, and how Paul is very unimpressive looking 
in comparison to how they now think of themselves. Now, this is where Corinthian culture crashes right into the gospel of grace. Corinthian culture loves impressive things. Corinthian culture is very focused on status and outward markers of impressiveness. Corinthian culture is boastful. Boasting is a big word in this letter. Corinthian culture is achievement-orientated, and Paul's gospel is not, and his lifestyle is not. What do they think of him? Look at 4.10. I'll start at 9. I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Sorry, let me just do battle with this microphone again. As last of all, like men sentenced to death because we've become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Now here he contrasts what the Corinthians think of themselves and what they think of him. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak. That's what the Corinthians think of him. But you are strong. You are held in honor. We in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst, poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled we bless, when persecuted we endure, when slandered we entreat, we've become and still are like the scum of the world the refuse of all things. Verse 11, they do not like his food and his eating habits. More of that later in the letter tomorrow. They do not like the fact that he is beaten, that he doesn't have a home to go to much of the time. They seriously don't like, verse 12, the fact that he works with his own hands in tent repairing business. They, they really don't like that. It's a big issue in this letter and in 2 Corinthians uh, you'll see his tent-making activity is, is made something of in, in Acts chapter 18, in his visit to Corinth. Uh, the Corinthians really don't like that. It's so disgustingly manual. They don't like how passive he is in verse 13. The fact that he seems to embrace hardship without fighting back. Verse 13 is what they think of him. We have become and still are to you like the scum of the world. You think we're just garbage. Our lifestyle is like that in your eyes. That's what he's saying. Do you see the distaste that's contained in those verses, in that comparison? They just think he's (laughs) so below them and so unspiritual now. And what they've done is to put a spiritual gloss on the values of their own culture. The things they value now are a Christianized version of the things they've always valued. Impressive stuff, good speech, wise words. And Paul was, when he visited the first time, and remains now an uncomfortable reminder of the fact that grace values people not by what they do or are, but solely because of what God is and what God does and what God gives. What did you have that you didn't receive? Where do your riches come from? Do you think yeah, they were yours or were they given to you? Paul's lifestyle, of course, mirrors that. You could not look at Paul and say that he was living the achievement-centered life, could you? I mean, what culture would measure Paul's lifestyle as 
jumping through the hoops, getting the grades. Another visit to prison, another beating, another trial, another sleepless night, another shipwreck, and so on. He really doesn't look successful. He is a painful reminder to them of an entirely different way of valuing things. And the big issue for the Corinthians is that they must adopt his pattern for themselves. They must. And in various points in this letter, he urges them to imitate him. Uh, Look on chapter 4. Look at verse 14. I don't write these things to make you ashamed. Oh, you ought to be ashamed, but that's not why I'm writing them. But to admonish you as my beloved children. For there you have countless guides in Christ. You don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, imitate me. And look what they think of him. The verses before. I urge you, imitate me. Be like me. (laughs) Take that on for yourselves. That is why I've sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. I've sent you a faith, I, the Father, have sent you a faithful son, and you'll look at him and you'll say, God, he doesn't half remind me of Paul, the way he's doing things. Do you see that? The implication is that they're not faithful children, and they ought to be. Uh, look on to chapter uh, 10. Just flip over to chapter 10, and you'll see the same kind of idea there. This is at the end of the food sacrifice to idols bit, which we'll look at tomorrow. At 10.31, so, in summary, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God, give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. You want to follow Christ? Imitate me, says Paul. Very striking way to talk, is it not? Why do they have to imitate Paul? Well, the answer is because only if they imitate Paul will the work of the Lord go on. Turn right to near the end, chapter 15, end of chapter 15. The end of the apparently resurrection-orientated chapter. Look at the conclusion of it, the very last verse. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Paul, the the Corinthians think Paul's life is a waste of space, a vain life, a life that is not all it ought to be, a life that is not really cutting it spiritually. And his great concern is that in finding his life distasteful, what they really find distasteful is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because they've distanced themselves from him and they don't want to be like him, actually they're distancing themselves from the gospel way of life and from the Lord they're supposed to love. Because they value human things rather than grace, they're in danger of leading lives that in the end are of no value at all. Genuinely in vain. 
Now, here's the big surprise of this letter. This is not the right garment for this microphone. I'll change it tomorrow. The surprising idea of this letter, and I guess it's a surprise for you, is that imitating Paul is the authentic pattern of imitating Jesus. Is that a surprise to you? It is a bit of a surprising idea, that, isn't it? And, of course, it raises the question, how, in what respect, are we to imitate Paul in order to imitate Jesus? Do we all have to be the itinerant missionary, doing things precisely in every way the same he did? I remember when I was a student hearing a missionary speaker, Michael Griffiths, coming to speak to the CU. And he uh, looked back to his own student days when another missionary speaker had come to speak at his CU. And this missionary speaker was an ex-military gentleman. And he said during his talk, Any man who does not go to the mission field is wet. (laughs) Is that what Paul's saying here? Be the itinerant missionary like me, or you're not really following the Lord Jesus. Well, what we'll find out in the next few chapters is that it's not quite as simple as that. But for now, for a moment, let's just reflect on the achievement culture that we live in. We are taught, are we not, to be independent, successful, to get on, to get the grades, to jump through the hoops to tick the boxes. And we live in a culture which is tremendously affirming of human potential. You can live the dream. Uh, I hate to admit it, but one of my favorite programs is MasterChef. It's really shameful to admit that, isn't it? I really enjoy watching that. I don't know why. But one of the strap lines on MasterChef is someone here will change their life. You know, human potential and human potential for change is a big thing in our culture. If you want it, if you really want it, you can do it. You can be it. And how easy it is to baptize the values of the culture we live in with a, a veneer of spirituality. To assume that if my culture values something, then conversion will bring me a more spiritual-looking version of the same thing. So Christians often say, look, if you become a Christian, you'll have a a better life, better income, better sex, all that kind of stuff. And some of that, of course, is true. But actually, that's just spiritualizing all the things that our culture wants. A friend of mine put it like this. Before I was a Christian, I wanted to be rich and famous. Now I want to be the best preacher in the world. What is the difference between those two things? Very little, really. The achievement mentality is right out there in our culture, and it is right in there in our churches and our hearts, is it not? To be the best we can, to succeed, to be successful, to be thought of by other Christians as being successful. How's life going, brothers and sisters? You're being successful? Well, the brilliant thing about Paul's gospel, the real gospel, is that it's not really about you being successful at all. It's all about Jesus, and it's all about his achievements. It's uncomfortable, that, because it's nothing like the way 
of valuing ourselves that our culture uses. Nothing like to find all our achievement in somebody else's. All our sense of well-being and success in what somebody else has done. It is uncomfortable that and countercultural, but also fundamentally thrilling and liberating. For unlike all the fruitless activity of our own world, his achievement and the life he's passed on to us is not in vain. Do you believe that? Well, let's pray that we might. Let's pray together. My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We look at a letter like this, Heavenly Father, and at a group of Christians who so quickly thought themselves better than the one who brought them the gospel message. And we find it quite hard to believe that that's possible. And yet we recognize that they, like, like we, live in a, a culture full of the impressive, driven by what looks good and sounds good and feels good. And we pray that uh, as a result of reading this letter, we might not value those things in the same way any, anymore or ever again. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who uh, endured great hardship and shame and death on a cross for our salvation. And we thank you for the example of Paul so clearly mapped out in this letter who followed in exactly the same pattern of being thought badly of, being accused of being weak and passive and scorned we thank you for these examples and we pray that we might embrace them for ourselves and that therefore our lives might not be in vain hear us we pray in Jesus name Amen